I told the boy, when you dream about bad things happening, it means you're still fighting and you're still alive. It's when you start to dream about good things that you should start to worry. The Road, screenplay by Joe Penhall, based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy. This is The End, and I'm your host during these end times, the pop mythologist. So I'm very excited about the next two episodes, which are really just one episode that I'm going to have to break up into two episodes because it was pretty long, uh, by my standards anyway. And in these two episodes, I invite my good friend, novelist, and film critic Jess Kroll to have a discussion with me about 10 films about collapse. Now, for the last 10 years, Jess has written film reviews for popmythology.com, which is the overarching website that this podcast is officially a part of. And because Jess's film criticism is such a big part of pop mythology, I knew when I started this podcast that I'd eventually want to bring him on at some point. And so when it was the right time to do so, we talked about it and then we knew that we'd be talking about movies, of course, but it would have to be movies about collapse because that's what this podcast is obviously about. But even when you say movies about collapse, that's still a pretty broad category. And a lot of movies could potentially fit into that, especially in terms of the way that I approach collapse as a very broad phenomenon that includes many things. So we knew we needed to narrow it down. And so we agreed on a set of parameters. First, the kind of collapse we'd focus on would be one where the disruptive effects of collapse are already well underway during the movie. So there are works of fiction that explore the root causes of collapse, for example, I'd argue that The Big Short, directed by Adam McKay, is a film about collapse. But we don't really see the disruptive effects on society occur during the movie. So we decided that in every film we would discuss, something will have happened during the movie to cause one or more critical functions of society, the economy, the government, or all of the above to cease to function. Maybe not entirely, but significantly. Next, we agreed that none of the causes could be due to magical or supernatural reasons. So that immediately eliminated a lot of fantasy and horror movies. Science fiction movies, though, were fair game as long as the future being depicted was a mostly plausible one. And so, you know, no space opera movies or things like that. And of course, we wanted to focus on narrative films and not documentaries. So these were some of our parameters, but within those parameters, we tried to include a diversity of films, such as serious dramas, but also a couple of comedies, an animated film, and even a classic black and white movie from the golden age of Hollywood. And we tried to choose films that include a range of different kinds of events that cause a collapse. Do keep in mind uh, that Jess and I are inveterate movie geeks, so even though we definitely talk about collapse as portrayed in these films, we also talk about some of the technical and artistic aspects, such as the writing, acting, cinematography, and so on. And you'll get to hear just how bad at names I am because I realized while editing the episode that almost with just about every movie, I ask at some point, wait, wait, so what was that guy's name again? And finally, a word on spoilers. In order to discuss collapse as portrayed in these films, 
it was necessary sometimes to mention certain things that would be considered spoilers. But of course, we also want to be sensitive to people who may not have seen some of these films. So if you check my notes in the podcast description, I mark the different timestamps where we mention spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie in question, you can skip those parts. Or maybe if you prefer, just skip the entire section where we discuss that specific movie. If you want the list of movies to be a surprise as you're listening, then I suggest to not check the notes just yet. Just keep listening until we introduce a movie you haven't seen and then pause the episode and check the notes to see exactly when spoilers are mentioned. And that's not a perfect method either, but it's the best I could think of. Okay, so that's enough for the intro. Here's my conversation with film critic Jess Kroll about 10 movies about collapse. Okay, so I have here with me my very good friend and longtime pop mythology contributor and film critic, Jess Kroll. Hey, Jess, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on. I am very excited to be talking with you today about a very cool list of movies that we've selected together. But before we go into those, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, obviously, my name is Jess Kroll. I've also written under the name Jay Manoa. That's the name that I wrote to young adult book series under for uh, Abdo Publishing. I also have a novel that I wrote while I was in graduate school called Land of Smiles. Those are all, unfortunately, only really available on Amazon. I know a lot of people don't want to put money into Jeff Bezos' pocket, but that's where, uh, that's where they are. And as you said, I've been writing for Pop Mythology for a while. Love doing that. Writing the movie reviews is incredibly fun. It's taxing sometimes and hard to do. But I uh, have a really good time with it. I like to try to make all of my reviews an experience within themselves. So it's not just the review of the movie. It's the review of the experience of the movie or the themes of it. And right now, I've, I've been living in South Korea for a few years. This is, of course, where, where you and I first met. That's know each other. And uh, I'm at a university out here now. I'm an assistant professor. Okay, very good. And as I often say to people, and it's not just because you're my friend, and it's not just because you're a longtime contributor, but I genuinely think you are one of the best film critics out there. I do mean that sincerely. And I think Thank anyone who appreciates good, thoughtful, insightful film criticism really would enjoy reading your reviews. So I highly encourage people. Um, I definitely recommend Jess Kroll's reviews on pop mythology for those of you out there. Um, I would like to say something. I would like to say uh, I, I only wish I could contribute more reviews. It's unfortunate that a lot of movies don't open up in the country where I am. Well, that, and also we both, unfortunately, have to do a lot of adulting. <laughs> yes. We have our day jobs and other responsibilities. There's only so much time we can spend on stuff like this. So, um, yeah, obviously the, the thought is much appreciated. But without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our list of movies. So as I mentioned in the introduction, there's going to be a logical sequence to this. But I thought it would be interesting to start with a few films that in some way address very timely topics or current events that are going on right now in the news. And so I wanted to start actually with the one film on this list that I did not get to see. So I'm going to rely on you, Jess, to sort of walk us through it. But that film is Donbass, released in 2018, directed by, I hope I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, but Sergei Losditsa. And so, yeah, so I have not seen this. 
why don't you go ahead and give us a synopsis of this to start with, and I'll ask you some other questions. Well, this is this is an interesting particular film because it's actually sort of thirteen short movies, short films, sort of put together all about the uh, the Russian invasion of the of the uh, Donbas area of Ukraine, but not. Obviously, because it was made in 2018, it's not what's happening right now. It was the um, the invasion that happened in the 2010s, and the different little vignettes deal with different subjects. There's one where it's a, a hospital that's been, you know, hoarding supplies. There's one that's a press conference where one of the politicians uh, smeared another one, and there's a response. There's one where they. The, the one that's very affecting is a guy who people think is a Ukrainian soldier in a Russian-controlled area and what the uh, the local populace does to him. There's one that's a wedding. There's a journalist. And sometimes they follow the same character from scene to scene. Sometimes those characters will repeat. What's curious about it is that the, the that structure actually reminds me a lot of Monty Python's Flying Circus, where sometimes there would be a character in a sketch that moves into the next sketch. And the sketch might not have anything to do with that character, but they just transition from one to the other. And Donbass actually does that at times. It's a, a very good movie. The, the first scene and the last scene in particular are uh, very effective and mirrors to each other. It's, it's good. That sounds really interesting structurally. So it's kind of like variations on a theme. Yes. Well, a, exploring different aspects of the same theme, the theme being primarily, uh, well, again, a very, very timely topic, uh, misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda, especially. And so you've just touched upon something that's actually going to be a recurring theme throughout this entire list of, well, not the entire list of films, but several of the films. So, okay, misinformation. Uh, what are some other prominent themes in the film? I would say that the most... The most prevalent theme would be the disinformation and the reaction that people have to it. The use of, well, one of the first scenes in it is a piece of staged news. If I remember correctly, I, I watched this a couple of months ago, and, and since then I've watched a lot of other movies. Um, but if I remember correctly, one of the first scenes, it opens up in a trailer. You don't exactly know what's happening, but it's people that you find out after... They're rushed out of this trailer after how they have all this makeup on and they're talking about, you know, what's my motivation and stuff like that. They're rushed out of this trailer and you hear a couple of explosions and there is a bus that's been blown up and you find these, not, you don't find, but you see these, these bodies on the ground and they start filming. And this old woman who was just in the makeup trailer, putting on the makeup and asking about her motivation is saying, you know, I was here, the, the, the army just came in and blew up this bus and killed all these people. And it's like, oh, okay. It's a, it's. It's stage news. It's fake media. And the last scene of it mirrors that in a very, uh, a very good way. It's very nicely done. But that would be the primary theme of it, if I remember correctly. Then the other ones is the other scenes. There's, there's quite a few of them. There's 13 of them. I don't remember all of them. And not all of them, to be honest, are quite as memorable as previous ones. It, well, misinformation obviously is very related to the overarching theme of collapse. But... Are there any other themes in the film that, in your mind, kind of also relate to collapse? I mean, so the film, as I understand it, relates to military conflict, which obviously is a prevalent theme when it comes to collapse. Like, 
you might remember I did an entire episode previously on just 10 films from the civilian perspective of oh, the yeah. war experience and how war just by itself can be an entire collapse or can be part of a larger collapse. Um, but sometimes the war itself just is the entire collapse. So I was curious what other, besides misinformation, and I you said that was like one of the dominant themes, but was there an end stage news and things like that? But is there anything else that you felt was interesting in relation to this theme of collapse? I just want to say really quickly, uh, thank you for that, that previous list for watching Grave of the Fireflies for that one, because it spared me from having to watch it again for this list. That movie is amazing, but I cannot watch that movie again. As for Donbass, there, yeah, you see, because the area in the film, and I guess in real life, um, the area, there's no authority there anymore. They try to control it. They try to keep some sort of order there. But because the area has been taken over by a different power that's far away and declaring war against, the, against that area, not declared war, but um, invading that area and the government that is supposed to be sort of in control there is not. There's a lot of just general sort of nobody knows what they're doing. There are scenes where the local government is trying to exercise some level of control and nobody needs to listen to it. Nobody tries to, nobody wants to. Um, the police are out there trying to, you know, keep the people within, you know, whatever orderly conduct they want. And again, there's no authority. So it deals with the collapse of social order within that, that small area. And considering what's going on in the news now with the, the current invasion of Donbass, you can kind of see, well, you can kind of imagine, you know, that, that happening. What's, what's weird about watching this movie now is that you, you see it and it was made a couple of years ago and you can watch it. You know, it's, it's presented as art. It's a good piece of art, but that exact thing is happening right now in the world, in the same place that it, that it was, it was filmed. So what is a film to us is the present reality for other people. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point that I feel like we'll be coming back to in a couple other movies on our list as well. Another thing I wanted to ask was, because you just mentioned that the film was made a couple of years ago, so obviously it's not directly about the Russia-Ukraine war per se, but as you were watching it, did you feel like it offered any kind of interesting or valuable commentary that could be applied to the current war. And I think you've already touched upon that, but I'm just wondering if there was anything else. That's a good question. Um, I think, I don't know the exact conditions of the present war, but it, the war that, that's happening right now, most of the news that we get is tactics. It's who's fighting in this region, um, the morale of the soldiers on the different sides. And of course, you know, Zelensky's uh, heroism. We hear about sort of the civilian toll, but there's not a lot of really direct, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't ask a reporter to embed themselves in that situation where these, this shelling is happening at random civilian locations. So I think that's what it does. That's, that's what films do is they give the experience of the people who live in that situation in a way that is oftentimes more visceral and more emotive than a straight-ahead news report would 
because when a, a news reporter starts to go into the emotion of the people there or the experience of the people there, they run the risk of no longer being objective, no longer being un unbiased. And especially now when, you know, everyone's looking for anything that has the slightest hint of bias on, on, in either direction, that's what a movie can do that I think uh, news can't. So in your reviews for pop mythology, you mm -hmm. give a rating for each film that you review, you know, out of five stars. How many stars would you give this one? Um, it's, it's somewhere between 3.5 and 4. As you probably have noticed, I'm very, like, I'm very protective of my, of my high star ratings. So a lot of times when people see like a 3.5 star, they think, oh, that, that means it's okay. No, 3.5 in my rating means it's very, very good. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely very familiar with that. Yeah. Yes. Even, yeah, three stars even is a pretty good film in, in your book, right? Well, average is 2.5. Like 2.5 means eh, it's fine. So war, of course, is one thing. The mm -hmm. nuclear war is another. And, of course, one of the things that the Russia-Ukraine war has done is to kind of begin a whole new era of nuclear anxiety for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And as we know, a previous era of nuclear anxiety was the 1980s. And that was just a whole era in general of a lot of like anti-Soviet films like Red Dawn and Rocky IV and all that. But there are also some really interesting works about nuclear anxiety. There were two in particular from that period. Both of them were made for TV movies. And one was the American film, The Day After, which my parents would not let me watch. <laughs> and the other was the British film, Threads. And we chose Threads, much to our horror. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How would you characterize this movie, Jess? Um, just relentless, unflinching. I would say that they did a, a very good job at at capturing um, the, the effects of, of nuclear weapons and that anybody who, you know, jokingly mentions using these weapons or even does it as, a, as an idle threat doesn't understand the effect that these can have, not just on the people directly in the blast radius, but those people, oh, what is it, hundreds of miles away? Yeah, it's, it's uh, a, a brutal experience to watch this movie. It really is. Have you seen Chernobyl? I have not. I, um, I, I tr I've tried to avoid these types of subjects. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's completely understandable. I mean, it, so Chernobyl was also a pretty brutal watch. It was really good, but it was pretty rough. But this felt even more so in a way, partly because I couldn't believe while watching. I'm like, oh, my God, this is a made for TV movie. You know, I, I, I read that virtually an entire generation of British children were traumatized. I can see why. I, yes. I feel traumatized now, you know? Yes. It, it is horrific. And one of the things I thought this movie did really well is when it comes to nuclear arms, like the situation it depicts, it starts out not necessarily being catastrophic, but mm -hmm. through a series of mistakes or miscalculated actions, or miscommunication, it could very quickly spiral into a catastrophic situation. So when people say like, oh, we don't need to worry, there are all these kind of like, you know, uh, checks in place and like nobody's going to be crazy enough to do this. It's going to be self-annihilation. I mean, yeah, that's true. But again, with complex human situations, 
you, you just don't know, right? Things can spiral out of control. And I thought this movie did a really good job of that. It did. It did an exceptional job of that. There's a lot of movies that, you know, like like one of my favorite, you know, dark comedies of all time, Doctor Strangelove. It ends with nuclear war, and of course, that's. But you see that from the perspective of the the two governments failing with each other. What Threads does is it shows the people on the ground, the people in the cities that are affected. Um, I read that the reason why they chose uh, Sheffield in England was that that town signed like a an anti-nuclear agreement of some sort. So they weren't going to have any sort of nuclear development within within their area. And so the people in that town were very willing to take part in the movie to further its message, its, its anti-nuclear message. Oh, wow. That is really interesting. I did not know that. Thanks for telling us that bit of background info if if uh if the source from a uh, from almost 20 years ago is <laughs> is is trustworthy or not yeah uh, another thing that i thought the movie did pretty well is again speaking of like war from the civilian perspective there was a bit of portraying you know people in power and uh, going about their administrative efforts their emergency relief efforts and things like that mm. you know there was a whole group from like the underground bunker but it was mostly just regular average people, right? As they're starting from a place of kind of like just a general level of worry, but okay, hopefully it'll work out. We will probably be fine. And then increasing anxiety and then just all out hellscape, right? And for me, I, I thought that the character that really reflected that process well was the, I uh, can't remember her name. I don't know the actress's name or the character's name, but she became pregnant. And oh, right. she... Yeah, there was that couple and they became pregnant and they were really looking forward to it. And then as the story progresses and as the situation gets increasingly dire, there's a point where she just says, I don't care about this baby anymore. And yeah. that's kind of when that hit hard. I was like, oh, wow, that's where you see the despair kicking in. And yeah, no, it's just and then the, the sort of breakdown of civil society, people you know, panicking. <laughs> this, this too is another theme we'll be seeing throughout several of our films. But, you know, people going on bank runs. There's a liquidity crisis as banks run out of cash. Mm -hmm. uh, there's hoarding, panic buying, understandably, a lot of social unrest. And I thought one of the things that is actually happening, you know, even though what's going on now so far in Ukraine is not nuclear war, there are issues with like power going out, people not having mm -hmm. enough power and heat uh, during the winter, which is brutal. And we see that in threads as well, because, you know, the blast itself, the nuclear blast, obviously, as devastating as it is, is only the beginning, right? Um, oh, yeah. It's just the beginning of this nightmare scenario for these people as there's no food, there's no medical infrastructure, which is also just horrifying because like of all the situations where you need medicine, modern medicine there's none of it there were many things about this movie that horrified me and that was like that scenario of just desperately needing medical care and not having any access to it because it's gone mm -hmm. that was scary well you mentioned the the character ruth is the name of the uh, the pregnant woman in it and she is as a character is so incredibly sad but she also sort of allows the filmmakers to introduce so many of those after effects where they mention that, you know, children born in nuclear fallout are oftentimes developmentally challenged or, you know, more prone to cancer. And Ruth herself, she, you know, the last time we see her, 
when she dies, she's prematurely aged. She has cataracts. She has cancer. And the film then picks up with the daughter, who's an even who's just as much of a sad a sad character, completely lacking in any sort of any of the medical supplies that you mentioned. Has no access to you know education to any sort of you know there's there's very little food. There's very little running water, all of that type of stuff. And she ends up in a, in just as bad of a situation. But in terms of, you know, the effect that things have afterwards, if I may, I, I like to share a quick, you know, quick experience of mine. When I visited Japan, I went to Hiroshima, one of the cities that I went to. And I went to the, the, uh, what is it? The peace, the peace park museum there. It's the museum that is there to chronicle the effects of the nuclear blast there. And boy, that's quite an experience, um, especially the last thing that I saw that I remember seeing in that is a, the story of a child surviving the actual bomb. And it follows this child over the course of many years. The child, you know, survives the initial blast, but then, you know, as the child grows up, there's the after effects. You see the the cancer, you see those things, and that's what eventually gets them. It's not the bomb that gets them. It's the effects after the bomb that gets them. It's the radiation. It's the fallout. It's the lack of supplies. It's the lack of access to, to medicine and other such things. There's so much more than just that initial blast. That's what Threads shows. That's what that's what the Peace Museum showed. Exactly. And, and I, too, thought that the museum... And the park in general was one of my favorite mm -hmm. experiences. I live in Japan for about a year, but one of mm -hmm. the most memorable experiences, and by no means fun <laughs> in the no. conventional sense, <laughs> no. but no. definitely sobering and meaningful was the museum. The, the other thing that's interesting I, that threads... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I, before we move off the, the topic of, of Hiroshima, what, what kind of moved me there, and it was my favorite city when I went to, to Japan, is how lovely the city is now. Because... You know, it was devastated, and yet you look at it now, and it's it's rebuilt. It's such a nice city, and the idea that that the mayor sends notes to the the leader of every single country that does a nuclear test, saying like, "Don't do this. We lived through this. Don't make these weapons." Like they've that city seems to have come back stronger and more enlightened, I guess we could say. That's what really moved me about there, about that place. I mean, I think if any people have a right to have an opinion on the matter, <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. It will be those folks. Um, yeah. But, but well. go, going back to threads, you mentioned the daughter, something that I thought was really interesting that mm -hmm. kind of really isn't portrayed in any of the other films that we have on the list, although maybe partially in one other film. But it's the it's the decline of language, right? Do you, you yeah. know how they have that pr weird primitive language that develops during the daughter's time, which I thought was really interesting and quite feasible. I think I see I, I completely see that happening. Well, it's it's a lot of it is the uh, the the mental impairment that comes from you know that amount of I think it's from the radiation poisoning, it's from the nuclear fallout. It's just I'm sure a lot of the people in that situation don't have their language centers develop in, in quite the same way as a more standard developmental course. Of all the films we watched, that was that was probably the the hardest to 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 get through. I think I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And at the same time, I think everyone should watch it. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of those films that you can watch it once and never, ever watch it again. I've had a running list of that topic in, in my brain for a few years, and this is definitely addition to that list. Grave of the Fireflies is on that one as well. Yeah. So in Threads, we see how the unsanitary conditions and lack of modern infrastructure and medicine in the aftermath of a nuclear cataclysm would also lead to secondary disasters, such as famine and diseases. And that brings us to another timely topic, which is disease and pandemics, which also in turn brings us to our next movie, which is 2011's Contagion, directed by Steven Soderbergh. So this definitely has got to be, I'm sure, one of the most watched movies throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> and just back in the beginning of COVID, you wrote an article uh, on our blog with a list of pandemic movies. And not surprisingly, Contagion was one of the films on that list. So why don't you share some of your thoughts on the film? Oh, this was this was the headliner on the list. <laughs> this was pretty much the reason I wrote that was I went back and rewatched it. Um, yeah, Contagion is... I, I didn't realize when I first watched it in the theater in 2011 that this was the first time I had ever heard the term social distancing was actually in this movie all the way back then. But it, this is one of uh, Steven Soderbergh's films where he sort of takes a theme and does all the effects around it. There was the one he did called Traffic a few years before this that was all about the drug trade. Um, I can't remember the one that he produced, at least that was about oil. I can't remember the, the name of it. But yeah, Contagion has just a lot of a big ensemble cast that very rarely interacts with each other, but they all they all follow their own their own stories and there's a number of different elements and it follows people at the CDC it follows uh, a doctor out there trying to research the the virus that's that's spreading it has a character who is a conspiracy theorist it has the the father and the daughter it examines the issue from several different sides and and you know, going back and watching it at the beginning of the pandemic and even watching it, you know, in, in what people are calling the post-pandemic, it's surprising how much of it is quite accurate to the actual experience. Not all of it, of course. And there are some things that I'm sure people will, will disagree with in terms of how it handles some of its characters, where its sympathies lie. But it does a very good job of, of predicting a lot of what actually happened. And doing so, as we said, in, in a way that the emotion comes from seeing the characters, but the film itself just feels like fly-on-the-wall journalism. It does feel like journalism. And, and yeah, like you say, it's amazing just how many things it got right without meaning to, right? It wasn't trying to, like, uh, in advance, we'd like to show you what COVID's going to be like, you know? It's just it's it's just trying to tell a compelling story, and it does that right. a compelling story, right? Compelling, you know, story on on the individual human level as well as on a larger scale. It does a great job of that. Well, one of the things that that was really interesting was, you know, I would go back and find some of these old discussion threads that started when the movie came out, and then there's a like a you know years of inactivity on the thread, and then in 2020. <laughs> Um, and the d discussion picks up again and people coming back and be like, oh my God, this movie was so prescient, you know, yeah. in so many ways. Like I said, not in every way, obviously, like the disease in this film is, is more um, virulent. 
it's more it's, it's, it's more a lot more it's a lot deadlier yeah 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 but still like you said the social distancing yeah it, it probably is where a lot of people first encountered the term i remember looking at that line again and it was it was you know before they have any sort of real research on the disease what he says i think it's a lawrence fishburne character that says it but he says you know the only way to fight back is like social distancing wash your hands don't shake hands wear a mask and that <laughs> that sounds so familiar to anybody who would watch this movie now and speaking of masks so so i i really like this film obviously and i think mm. it's amazingly accurate and realistic and all that there was like a minor detail or maybe not so minor but that kind of bothered me just a little bit even though i kind of also understand why they might have decided to do this but so, you know, by the time in the film, by the time the CDC sends Kate Winslet's character out into the field, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear at that point that whatever is going on is serious and it's mm -hmm. also spreading really fast. But she's going around <laughs> like interviewing people without a mask, um, <laughs> at least at first. And then she eventually puts one on in a couple of scenes, but then takes it off again when she's with people. And I was thinking about this, um, you know, Maybe because, you know, and then the character gets sick, right? I mean, duh, like, of course, no surprise there. But then I was thinking about that. And I was wondering, maybe that was a deliberate aesthetic choice, because if you have your primary cast in a mask, mm. like most of the time, then from the audience's perspective, it kind of does detract from the experience of watching these great actors do their thing. And obviously, like facial expressions are a big part of acting, right? and just watching movies in general. So I can understand that from an aesthetic perspective, if that was indeed like a conscious decision. But just having gone through, you know, a few years of pandemic and knowing what we all know now, it was slightly bothering to me to like see these characters just kind of like not wearing a mask in situations where they definitely should have been. That's, that's, uh, I, I don't think Lawrence Fishburne's character ever wears one in the entire film in any situation. Well, Lawrence Fishburne's character is never in the field. He's the 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 researcher he's sort of contained he's the guy just sort of organizing things he never has to actually go out there but that is a really good point about i didn't even think about that but it might also be that you know in in 2009 wearing a mask in public was nowhere near as like socially acceptable as it is now i mean i don't know about where you are but we're still wearing masks in in korea just because that's still enforced here yeah, no, in East Asia, it's definitely the norm. But to answer your question, no, where we are, the majority of people definitely are not wearing masks anymore. And actually, thanks to this whole kind of wave of respiratory infections, like mm -hmm. RSV and just the flu um, and just even the common cold, as well as COVID, some people have been, you know, resuming the wearing of masks. But for the most part, I would say most people still don't. Um, that is a good point you make that at the time the film came out is much less socially acceptable or even even you know for western audiences at least even like an idea that seemed normal you know but given yeah. the amount of research that they clearly did on this film because there's so many details that get so right that yes. it just kind of seemed to be this glaring thing and like yeah like Lawrence Fishburne's character is not in the field but given how widespread the uh, disease becomes you know like mm -hmm. if everyone other person like every other person is getting it right so it's really bad it that would is just true. Seem if, to be like a, yeah, yeah. If he could be considered sort of the Anthony Fauci character, like stand in for the character Fauci, Fauci got you know COVID as well, but much later in the pandemic. But 
I think, well, part of what, part of what differentiates this, this film from, you know, the real life experiences experience is that I think this one is a much deadlier disease. So it doesn't have as much time to spread because it kills so much quicker than COVID did. Part of what made COVID so, so widespread is that it didn't kill as effectively as this. This one has, if I remember correctly, like a, a 25% fatality rate, whereas COVID is like one or two. And that's part of what actually keep. Yeah, yeah that's, that's I think 25% is correct for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of what keeps something like Ebola contained is that it kills so effectively. Yeah. It's, it's weird to say that, but like, yeah. Well, no, it's true. And that's why I, I've often said among friends, like, if you're like, if I were a virus, I would kind of prefer to be a virus like COVID because um, mm. that's an effective way to spread, right? That's... For the exact reason that you just mentioned, with something as severe as Ebola, as horrific mm. a disease as it is, you know, well, first of all, it, because it's so horrific, people would probably take it a lot more seriously, but also yes, it's kind of well. easier to trace it and therefore contain it, just like you said. That's what that's something that that a yeah. lot of people sort of sorry to cut you off, but that's something that that a lot of people sort of forget when they when they think about you know the the vaccines and you know every few months there's like hey, there's there's a new strain of of COVID. People forget that like these are living things, and the most basic goal of every living thing is to continue living. The paradox of the virus is that in order to live, it kills the host, or it's a it's you know continued existence will lead to the killing of the host but it's going to do whatever it has to to survive so it's going to adapt it's going to mutate exactly which is why from an evolutionary perspective covid is arguably a very efficient virus mm -hmm. because it's able to efficiently fulfill that very purpose you yes. just mentioned of a virus it's it's an evolutionary nightmare <laughs> in terms of just you know, dealing with it from from the point of view of a species that's trying to get rid of it. It's a nightmare. Well, speaking of nightmares, so, you know, an, another aspect of the film is that we see how within a relatively short period of time, just a few weeks, mm -hmm. you know how the film does this thing where it's like day one or day 10, day 18, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, once word gets out about just how bad the situation is, we start to see the panic and the sort mm -hmm. of a social breakdown um again just like in threads people make a run on the banks gas stations grocery stores yes. uh, there's panic and looting rioting but here also was another small thing that slightly and not in any significant way but it slightly bothered me which is so matt damon's character a very likable character he has his daughter he's protecting her but then the whole time i'm wondering okay like they go to the grocery store it's, it's being looted so they kind of just leave without anything and then, yes. you know, weeks pass and they seem fine. I'm like, where are they getting their food? Well, there is there is the one scene where he goes to the neighbor's house to try to sort of like, I think, raid their their supplies. But yeah, that is a good point. There wasn't a lot of DoorDash and, and stuff like that in, in 2009. 2011, 2011, sorry. Yeah, it's a forgivable detail because, again, the film does so much so well. But, you know, yeah, I mean, he goes to his neighbor's house. Uh, I don't know, that neighbor thing was also kind of weird because there were those two thugs or whatever that, mm -hmm. I don't know, you hear gunshots, right? And then, yeah. but it, the, the film doesn't really show what happened because cause Matt Damon's character then goes there, but he doesn't seem to find any bodies or anything, um, or the film doesn't show us. 
uh, him discovering any bodies. Then he kind of picks up their shotgun and that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to, I don't know, it was, it was a little, it was, it was a little unclear what was exactly going on there. Yeah. It's, it, I almost, that's, that's one thing about the film that I remember the first time I watched it, the scene where they go to the, is the grocery store and the people there obviously, you know, taking whatever they can. And he, you know, pulls the daughter out because he doesn't want her to be infected. And they go outside and there's the people siphoning the gas out of the, out of the gas tank. That, that material, I, I almost feel like I, I could have done with a little bit more of that when watching it because that was the most, like, I don't want to say exciting, but it kind of was the most, like, tension-filled part of the film. Actual, in terms of really seeing the, the, the highest or I guess the lowest of humanity was was that part and looking at it now that's only like like 30 percent more than what actually happened you know obviously there wasn't as much as much looting but there was still the the, the panic buying there were still people desperately trying to get whatever they could and all of that but you're right that that was a little that was a little bit of a of a uh, oversight <laughs> actually keeping the family supplied and never showing anything about that. Yeah, and um, the the other thing that I thought was kind of glossed over, and again, kind of understandably, because they're covering a lot of stuff, right? Yes. They're trying to show like so many different aspects of a pandemic, but the process of finding the vaccine, like I felt like one moment in the film, they're struggling, they're frustrated, you know, they're they're not making much progress, and then suddenly the next scene, you have that I can't remember the actress's name, but she has this blissful look on her face as she's looking at the monkey who survived. And now they have the vaccine all of a sudden. So like, okay, yeah. that, that was a little uh, jarry for me. I, it's not a huge problem, I don't think, but it, it felt kind of jarring. It was just sudden. That was that was quite fast. I mean, thinking about it again, it's 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 less than a two hour film, and it has to cover a lot of stuff. You're right. I I don't think I don't know how how compelling of a narrative it would have been to have different characters going. Okay, we're gonna rush. Uh, FDA approval of this vaccine. <laughs> I don't think how much, I don't think the bureaucracy behind the development would have been super compelling. But you're right about that—that that the scientific breakthrough comes very, very quickly. And it does do something that I thought was very interesting and reflective of COVID, which is that the whole question of who gets the vaccine—that part I mm. thought was very well done. Um, yes, not just yes. with like the maintenance worker and his son. And his whole kind of dynamic with Lord Fishburne's character, Doctor Cheever, mm-hmm. not just that, but also that whole built that village uh, was mm-hmm. it Hong Kong or China? I can't remember for sure, but it was um, it, it, yeah. it was somewhere in China, I believe. Yeah, but this just the whole question of who gets the vaccine, who doesn't, and issues yeah. of equity, access, fairness, just things like that. I mean, we also saw that in COVID, so I felt like that was mm-hmm. kind of, um, very well done as well. That was one thing that sort of in in watching the movie now the the kidnapping of uh, Marion Cotillard's character that sort of rang untrue to me in some ways, but the concern of the other um, WHO official in getting the vaccine to his village that was very you know that was very resonant in the film. It was just the kidnapping aspect that was a little like eh, I don't know about that. I also realized, I didn't even notice it the first time, but while we were watching it, I realized that the film just kind of leaves us hanging as to what she actually does. Because, you know, we yes. see her racing out of the, the airport 
but yes. doesn't tell us what she does. Yeah, that I mean, was that was a bit of that was a bit of a cliffhanger there. Yeah, presumably she goes back to the village to warn them. But then what then? <laughs> you know. Yeah, that was that was something I remember watching watching it and being like, oh, so are we meant to think that the entire village is wiped out? Because that's you know that doesn't really go with the triumphant feeling of the ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. Well, so we have wars, we have pandemics both of which are also present in our next film, Children of Men, released in 2006 and directed by Alfonso Cuaron. All right, so we're both excited to talk about this movie, obviously. Yes, great movie. But just before we begin, I just want to start by explaining something to the audience, which is that, as many people know, this movie depicts a world ravaged by global infertility. Now, in real life, professional futurists call this a situation like this, they would call it a high impact, low probability event. But low probability doesn't mean impossible. And in fact, one of the scenarios that used to be considered a high impact, low probability event was, can you guess? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, you, do you want to take a guess at what used to be considered a high impact, low probability event by futurists? Uh Global pandemic? Exactly, a global pandemic. <laughs> so futurists also say to take a high-impact, low-probability events seriously and foresee them and prepare for them because despite the relatively low probability, when they do happen, they are extremely high-impact. So uh, a professional futurist, for example, like Jane McGonigal, who in her book Imaginable, discusses some of the reasons why we do need to, as a society, like discuss and think about these low probability events. And actually, in the case of infertility, just like with pandemics, it seems that with the passing of time, it's actually becoming more and more likely because mm. male sperm count has actually been decreasing, like actual in real life, globally for decades, likely due to a combination of a lot of reasons, like you know, such as potentially uh, lifestyle, diet, but also things like exposure to toxins, like microplastics, which act as endocrine disruptors. So for all these reasons, we actually see in real life the, the count of male sperm really declining in real life. So it's not so unlikely anymore and increasingly becoming more likely. But uh, having said that, so I just wanted to kind of set that context up in that this is a science fiction film that in so many ways is so, well, realistic, but also, in my mind, has a fairly high probability of actually occurring. Not necessarily exactly the way it does in the movie, but in some ways. But yeah, let me pass it off to you and, and why don't you kind of share some of your general thoughts on it. I, I think, as I, as I mentioned to you before, when we started this list, I was excited to watch this movie again because I remembered it just being an exceptional film. It is like the camera work in it alone is astonishing. And I forgot just how bleak this entire world is. <laughs> I got so, my, my memory of it is so much caught up in the art of the actual filmmaking, the, the, the car chase sequence alone, where the camera moves from the different, the different seats within the cars and all of that. The art is so compelling that I forgot just how, just how dark the world is, how gloomy this this story is it's again like a, a sort of a brutal watch but one that that i think you can watch it more often than something like threads because there is 
at the same time, the artistic level to, to grasp onto and to uh, almost use as an escape from <laughs> how gloomy the, the subject matter is. Yeah, if someone were to ask me, like, out of this list, which movie do I personally feel would be the closest to mm. some form of real-life collapse that we might possibly see in the coming years or decades? And I would say this film. And again, by that, I don't mean like exactly the way it mm -hmm. happens in the movie. And I don't even necessarily mean, I'm not even necessarily talking about infertility. But mm -hmm. um, what I am talking about is fascism. So like yes. we see, if, if we were to replace infertility with say climate change, mm -hmm. and then you're going to inevitably, I mean, it's already happening, but it's going to get worse, which is the mass migrations, right? Yes. Across borders, people seeking safety because they're displaced from their own homes. And then as that also inevitably overlaps with economic downturn, and as people start to get increasingly scared and desperate, you know, I do feel like a historical pattern is going to reoccur where you have like these you know, proverbial strongmen appear and say, hey, like I feel your pain. You know, I know yes. the answer. Uh, yes. Put your trust in me. Right. I love and, 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 and there will. Yeah. And there will be demand for things like the closing of borders um, mm -hmm. and. Just so much of what we see in the film, I, th I could just totally see that happening. And the film does it in such an artistically compelling way. That's also, you know, there's that slight documentary feel. There's like the, sh the, the mm. shaky cam aspect and just the scenes of like these uh, migrants being locked up in cages mm -hmm. uh, is not just potentially indicative of the future, but is also reminiscent of things we've already seen in recent yeah. years, right? What is the what is the Title Forty Two? There's that Title Forty Two, the actual American government thing that said they could lock up immigrants coming in from countries because they thought that they might be carrying COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, that's I, something I, that the that the movie handles extremely well. Is the the uh, the immigration, the people just trying to flee from other countries coming in and and being thrown in the cages, and it's not something that is really really dwelled upon in the beginning of the movie it's sort of a, a little undercurrent that ends up tying in much more later on that's beautifully like thread throughout yeah absolutely and it's something else that i thought was really well done and that i thought was also really very realistic in terms of what we might potentially see in like a real life collapse scenario is this simultaneous coexistence of like third world conditions with high tech you know, this, mm. this, this, this vast divide between the haves and the have-nots, um, mm -hmm. dire poverty mixed with extravagant wealth. So like the scene that for me captured that was when Theo, the protagonist, visits, I think it's his cousin's house, his cousin who is like a government official. Yeah, the official, that. yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's just like this lavish palace, basically. Yeah. And the the cousin's son is like basically addicted to some sort of, uh, virtual reality interface right oh right um, yeah yeah there's just like this juxtaposition of extravagant wealth and power while the vast majority of people are struggling with you know lack of resources and, and things like that and 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 that is something that i see that i think is not only happening already mm -hmm. um but is very likely to get worse in, in the years ahead so there's just so much in this film that i just feel like is so prophetic and and yes. and just also very realistic.
And then you have even, you know, in the film, you have the, uh, the fishes and you have the sort of the, the, the governmental entity and the, the two sides that are, are fighting each other. And then even when something miraculous happens in the end, it's only a temporary stop to their, to their fighting against each other. That's something that also I think was, is, is very realistic as well, is that you have two sides that oppose each other. And then even if the thing that they're supposed to be fighting over is settled, they're just so ingrained in the fight that they're going to that they're just going to continue with it. And that's also a really great point, yeah. Because you know the other thing the film does really well again yet yet another thing is you know it shows like the emergence of this fascist state, but it, and it shows the reaction to that right, which is like the rise in radicalism and mm -hmm. sort of oppositional movement initially led by. Julianne Moore's character. Um, yeah. What's her name? Uh, the character. Julianne. Uh, Julianne. Julian, okay, so close. <laughs> similar to the real actress's yeah. name. Um, <laughs> really interesting character, even though she has relatively short screen time. I thought it was a really interesting character. Um, yeah. And obviously, her sort of history with Theo is, is also kind of interesting. But yeah, you mentioned that scene. That amazing. I mean, can we just for take a moment to? really give a big shout out to the long takes in this film the amazing oh long takes oh my god yes the last scene that has julian moore in it oh my gosh that's i i still i watch that sometimes just trying to imagine like where's the camera in this scene like where is it how did that you know yeah it's incredible it's incredible yeah it it, it that is an incredible sequence, but the one for me that really just blows me away each time and, and blew me away even more again when I was rewatching it was that sort of final sequence in the war zone when Theo is trying yes. to get to, what's her name? The miracle mom. Um, uh, K. It's, it's spelled K-E-E. -E. I don't know if it's K or Key. I can't remember which one it is. E okay. All right. Um, we'll say K for the time being, who is the miracle mommy with the pregnancy. When Theo is trying to get to her, and that sort of final sequence with that amazing long tick, which, God, can you even imagine like one thing going wrong and like cut? Okay, we're going to do that. For her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in in yeah. fact, I was actually reading an article that they did have to do it over like multiple times because the timing of each thing is just so intricate that, yeah, you know. Um, and it's, yeah, it's I mean, explosions. Must... It's people running all over the place. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing sequence. That whole thing is amazing. Yeah, and so I would really suggest to people, if possible, like this is not a movie to watch on your computer screen or your laptop. <laughs> I, this is as much as possible, you know, whether it's like a, a rescreening at an actual theater, if possible, or um, just like a big TV, if possible, you know, because the visuals are just so amazing, right, that I, I feel like... It, I mean, this director in general, films like Gravity, right? Yes. These are all films that need to be seen. They're just begging for a big screen. I was just about to. I was just about to say. Well, there was also Gravity. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. What really strikes me about about Children of Men and you know Contagion has this has this in a similar way, but the pacing of Contagion of Men is immaculate. It's the way it's it starts, of course, with a with an explosion, but it's relatively small scale and. As the film goes, it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you reach, as you said, the long tape, tape running through the city. That climax is, it's, it's huge. You know, it goes from, you know, oh, they're being chased in a car by people on foot to now there are tanks coming in, blowing up buildings. 
Now there are planes bombing this area. The escalation is flawless. It's incredible. The pacing and also the the perfect use of, I mean, it is one of the most emotional action sequences I can remember because by this point, you've come to love the characters, right? Yes. Um, and you know the stakes that are involved. So when all that craziness is occurring, it is just literally heart pounding, right? Like literally mm -hmm. on the edge of your seat kind of action. I mean, it's the best kind of action film. I mean, it's not purely an action film, obviously, but there are sequences that are action-like, you know, and it's the best kind of action because you are so involved emotionally. And they introduce that that sense of danger very quickly with the with the scene in in the car with Julianne Moore. Just that is so sudden, and you think, oh, this Julianne Moore, she's one of the big stars. She's gonna, you know, she's gonna be in the whole film. No, she's not. <laughs> And it creates that sense of unease throughout the entire, it's that, that Game of Thrones, anyone can die at any time type of thing. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. 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 But in this case, you know, it's, it's much shorter, so you don't have the, uh, the, the numbness that sets in with something like Game of Thrones. But it is danger. It's this constant sort of threat. But also, you know, the, the movie does such a good job having its small moments, that moment in the, the school where the nurse talks about being there when the children's voices started to fade. Those little moments that, that give you the, the rest from the heart pounding, you know, more uh, horrifics, not horrific, but the more uh, tension filled sections. It's, yeah, he just, he just knows how to make a movie. <laughs> Yeah, that that scene was very beautiful. Like, um, yeah, I think she said something like, "This is not an exact quote, but like, I was there for the end." And then Theo says, "And you'll be there for the beginning." Yeah. Um I mean, she's not obviously. Spoiler, she's not. That's, but yeah, but, that's the but, that's the that's the tragic part. Yeah, yeah. But oh. but that makes me want to kind of get into another aspect of the film that I personally really appreciated because, mm -hmm. as you know, from just you know my my previous writings on pop mythology, I'm a very spiritual person. And mm. some of the spiritual and religious symbolism and imagery in this mm -hmm. film, you know, people might have different feelings about that, but I personally really appreciate it. I mean, you know, so of course the the birth scene, right? Mm, Where it's of kind course. of like the whole Joseph and Mary thing um, yeah. in a very sort of humble situation. There's nowhere else to go. You're just in this little mm -hmm. dirty room and yeah. and you just got to give birth. It's such a moving scene where it's like, I feel like it completes Theo's transformation from this kind of disillusioned former activist who kind of has this jaded view of the world um, yes. when the movie starts and now becomes like the new sort of steward of hope, basically. Yes. The shepherd. The shepherd, yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, the other thing, and this was actually, I don't, I don't know if I missed it the first time or forgot or what, but something that I noticed on a rewatching that I thought was really nice was, so you notice how the animals in the movie really like Theo? You know how there's that huh. scene when he arrives at the, the home where uh, some of the, the resistance fighters are hiding out and yeah. there are these dogs, there are these two dogs and they're like, they, yeah. they like wagging their tail and like the owner says, they like you, but they don't like anyone. I, Which was interesting. That. Yeah. And then at the same, in the same sequence, like in, they're having this meeting 
in the house. Yeah. There's a cat who is like pawing at Theo, almost like she's saying like, you know, pet me, pet me or something like that. And it's interesting because at that point, Theo is still kind of, he's still cranky, still kind of selfish. You know, he's, he hasn't completed his transformation yet. He's still sort of, yeah. you know, okay, I'm sort of on board for the time being, but ultimately I still care about myself. But the animals see past what we see, you know, what we're allowed to see. We still see kind of like this gruff exterior. And it's almost like the animals are symbolically seeing past that. And they're seeing the inner beauty of him, of this character. Yeah. I never noticed that. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch this movie again. <laughs> there you go. Another, another excuse another to watch, to watch an amazing. Again. Yeah. You can't have enough reasons to rewatch a movie like this. No. It's just. So I'm curious then, would you, what would be your rating for this film? Oh, wow. This is a 4.5 or this is, this is at least a 4.5. Yeah. Right. Like honest, even by your pretty strict. Yeah. Even, even by your, even pretty strict by standards. my incredibly strict standard. Yeah. And part of it, part of it, honestly, is because with the grading, part of it is I need to be able to sit with it. And do I still think of this movie days, months, years later? And this is a movie that has, that has stuck with me ever since I first saw it. So that adds to, as to the rating, that's kind of, you know, uh, a little bit of a of a detriment to to new releases, but yeah, this is a four point five, at least. So you know, even though global infertility is portrayed as a tragedy in Children of Men, oh, which our next movie, I know where you're going. I know where you're going now. Maybe in our next movie, infertility is actually the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm talking, of course, about the hilarious 2006 film *Idiocracy*, directed by Mike Judge. And I, oh, I almost said it's the only comedy on our list. It, it's not. There's another comedy, but it's, um, it, it's one no, of. I would, I would contest. I would contest. It possibly is the only. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Oh no, no, no. There's, 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 there's one other, and then there's one that's not a comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely know what you're talking about. But so, so *Idiocracy*. Um, you know, both of these movies, actually, Idiocracy and Children of Men, they were both released in 2006, yet they both feel like they could have been released yesterday. I mean, would you oh, agree God. with that? I would. I like, would. They haven't of, aged. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, obviously, Idiocracy has a lot of a lot of terms that are that are used that, well, I don't know, you're you're lampooning a certain a certain type of person. So maybe they would still use, you know, certain words that. I wouldn't use personally, but I do feel that Idiocracy has a very, it feels like a George W. Bush era political satire in that mm. I think if you were to make a political satire, if this movie were to be made, made now, there would be a different kind of idiot mm. because we, we've seen in the last few years, the rise of a different sort of idiocy. Yeah. Related, related, but focused in a very different way. So what are some themes or just any elements at all that really stuck out for you in this film? Uh, well, there's the there's the obvious one of the sort of dumbing down of of humanity, which, yeah, is even before this movie came out, that was something that I sort of I sort of thought about. But the uh, overwhelming amounts of, co of corporate control, which is also going to be something that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a couple of other films later on. The, the whole, you know, Brano, the, or is it Brano or Brondo? Is there a D in it? Brondo, I think it is. Yeah, Brondo. Brondo. Yeah. But then, you know, the, the, <laughs> oh, God. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking of all the different television shows that are in this Owl My Balls and the, the movie Ass, you know, just the and and then, you know, Fox News coming in, the media control of things. It, it's it it really is a good exaggeration. It's a it's a good farcical look at one possible avenue that uh, societal collapse could take is following this train of thought. The thing about this movie is that personally, it's not really my type of humor and that a lot of the jokes don't really land for me, but the broader themes are what appeal to me in, in this film. I like the ideas more than I actually like the humor of it. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. For sure, Mike Judge is, his type of humor is not yes. to everyone's taste. It yes. is pretty, you know, crude and, um, but, but there was one. <laughs> so like, I laughed so hard in this one scene that I think was actually like the least sort of Mike Judgey, um, <laughs> which is that scene where that army guy, Collins, is giving a plus uh, a slide presentation. Oh god! Um, about the idea, <laughs> and then uh, there's that one part where he gets to like, the whole thing with a pimp, and then yes. you know he has a he has like a couple slides on end. They're like they're like Collins, yeah. just just get on with it. It's like oh okay, let me skip ahead. And, so, and yeah. then like twenty of the next slides are all him, yeah, and this pimp, and, and they're like Jesus Collins. <laughs> I, I that was, was, for me was like the gets enthralled with the with the pimp lifestyle yeah that was that was yeah. pretty great that's also like integral to the uh to the actual downfall of the program you know where he where collins ends up disgraced and they cancel this whole thing and that's why uh not sure gets lost right right froze down, or unfrozen right yeah yeah and and, oh. and, you, and you definitely mentioned that the theme that i also wanted to touch upon which is just like yeah the ultra ultra corporatization of just everything mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and and this is definitely a major theme in multiple films on our list rightfully so i think because we're seeing mm -hmm. it happen now in many ways and, and again just like the you know and obviously the movie exaggerates in a lot of ways with just the, the sheer extent to which everyone is an utter moron in this world but the point certainly is very well taken of the role of a kind of, I mean, it's not even just, I mean, part of it is intelligence, yes, but it's also just kind of like a, a, a drop in critical thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, ability to to discern. And and yeah, if you're, the characters in this movie are, are just plain stupid, which then kind of naturally results in inability to be critical thinkers. But in the real world, I would argue it's not really just so much about like raw intelligence or IQ, because I actually don't think that's all that important at all. I, I think it's really just an ability to kind of look past the surface of things, to question, you know, to think like broadly and to think from different angles, approach a topic from different angles. And on that note, I actually think the character of, of what's his name? Joe, is it? Joe, right? Joe. Yeah, um, Joe. Is kind of symbolizes that in a way because I feel like his character represents not the power of like genius level intellect to solve problems. Mm -hmm. It's actually about the ability of ordinary people to solve problems, which mm -hmm. Joe is. And, you know, underneath all the slapstick and, and the sort of crude humor, I feel like there's this kind of nice symbolism of the character of Joe and Rita, who are these two just regular people. Mm -hmm. um, but they literally saved the world, right? And it doesn't take like, 
you, you know, like, I mean, I feel like a lot of people these days are rightfully frustrated about what they perceive as kind of like elitism in, in, in academia or in the media. Mm -hmm. And I really sort of can understand that. And um, I feel like this movie is a kind of a nice little testament to, you know, symbolically, a nice little testament to the power of just a regular person um, through sincerity, through good intention to make a difference. Well, what you see, what you see with Joe is that in the beginning, he's not a critical thinker. And maybe it's because he understands his, that he's not like the most capable person. But like the narrator says, you know, lead follower, get out of the way. Joe is a get out of the way type of guy. But as the movie goes on, it says, you know, this time he's not going to get out of the way. He is actually going to step in. And that's when he starts to sort of sort of think more critically about things. The lack of critical thinking, I think, is most illustrated in uh, Rita's, Rita's customer that follows her around. And she keeps uh, <laughs> extracting money for favors that never come. And he never, he never really questions that. He's just sort of like, okay, you're the, you're the professional. Or the uh, the cabinet secretary, or not the cabinet secretary, the every every person in the movie who is like, well, Brondo's got what plants craves. It's electrolytes. But what are they? It's what plants crave. You know? Right. <laughs> you see that. I would say, like, I think Rita is probably smarter than Joe because she seems a lot more capable in most situations than he is. And I'm pretty sure Rita could figure out, like, oh, put water on the plants. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she could have done that. But she just, you know, she wants she, her her life is one where she needs to lay low. She doesn't want the attention because that's what she's been conditioned to do her entire life. In terms of lead follower, get out of the way. She's going to instead of getting out of the way, she's going to sort of wander off to do her own thing. That's the way she would get out of the way. But yeah, it's the. Uh, Boy, a lack of critical thinking in this. It's it's hilarious because it really shows. Well, you know, we had the uh, what is it, the malapropism of uh, herd mentality. This is very much an illustration of of that of just follow along. You know, the Brano has Brando has what what plants crave, and therefore it's good for plants, even though it's killing all the plants. <laughs> but it has what plants crave. You know, or the, uh, <laughs> yeah, all the other corporate slogans, Carl's Jr. Fuck you. I'm eating, you know, like <laughs> there are so many details. Yeah. That actually yes. you're reminding me just now with the, like the, the, the Carl's Jr. thing. And, and so what do you think of president Camacho? I mean, how prescient <laughs> is that character? <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I love Terry Crews. I know he has a couple of little like problematic things here and there, but I'm I'm just happy when I see Terry Crews in in, in anything because he seems like such a such an interesting person. President Camacho, um, perfect encapsulation of of spectacle as substance. Just somebody who is completely empty but talks louder than everyone else, and therefore is worth following, according to them. Yeah, great character. <laughs> I know, it really is a great character. And, you know, in, in a way, he almost struck me as, in some ways, like in this world of just everyone being idiots, he, in some moments at least, I mean, obviously there are moments where he just very clearly displayed his inability to think, but there were a couple mm -hmm. moments where like, you know, he's actually in a world of idiots, one of the less idiots. <laughs> yes, I was thinking that. I was thinking he's not that stupid sometimes. I mean, he put Joe to work, for example, right? Um, <laughs> yes. when, when no one else could think to do so. And 
And he still takes it farther, though. He does what um, that big speech that Camacho gives has a, a very nice representation of the sort of escalation when somebody starts to get, you know, applause and approval, they escalate, they get farther and farther. And he's saying like, yeah, Joe's going to fix the, he's going to get the crops to grow and he's going to fix the dust problem. He's going to fix this and he's going to fix this. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, and he's going to do it in a week. Okay. Now you've gone a little bit too far. <laughs> like these are problems that can be solved, but to solve all of them in that time span, like he just, he's so, Camacho is, is so much enjoying the approval that he's getting that he just goes farther and farther and farther and then there's something that is essentially impossible promises something that's essentially impossible and that's something that we see a lot i mean <laughs> like no kidding yeah um yeah. especially nowadays right oh yeah uh, <laughs> and here again just again so many uh we, we mentioned the the corporization of everything but like okay the so dust storms which reoccur in in a, again multiple films on our list yeah. Of all of the, the sort of collapse situations that we cover in these films, I think dust is the most prevalent. Yeah, it, it wasn't on purpose because that wasn't no. our criteria when we were choosing, but it just turned out that way, right? Where yeah. almost half these films have a very prominent place for dust. <laughs> yes. And it's as somebody who is actually allergic to dust, <laughs> like I understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so would you say on the whole that you liked Idiocracy? Um, I would say on a whole, I would say it's a good movie. I would say, as I said, like the humor of it is not exactly my taste, but conceptually, I like it more as an idea than as an actual film. It's one of those things that I, I, I like that it exists <laughs> more than I enjoy watching it exist. Yeah. I've, the only part that I've gone back and watched like more than during my rewatch is the beginning sequence, the beginning, the first like five minutes. I find that hilarious. Right. With the whole like mankind, yeah. stupider and stupider. <laughs> because it, I mean, it is, it is also painfully true where the, uh, the, the more thoughtful couple is saying, well, we don't know if we want to bring a child into this, oh, yeah. into this world. There are so many problems. And then there's just the total idiots, you know, breeding like rabbits. And that's, that's the one that, that, in terms of doomsday scenarios, that's one of the ones that I find the most terrifying. Well, and it's happening because I see on yes. a lot of these subreddit groups that I'm on that are in some way or other related to like societal breakdown. And so there's a big one, obviously, there's the collapse subreddit and there are a mm -hmm. couple of related ones. There's one called Lost Generation, um, mm -hmm. which is basically about the frustrations and anxieties of young people these days. And you see a lot of these threads where people mm -hmm. are just like, I am not going to have children, you know, um, I, yeah. I, I don't see it as being a morally justifiable choice, given everything that's going on. And aside from people's different opinions about whether that's right or wrong, I think it's hard not to understand where that's coming from, right? Because, yeah, there are so many reasons to feel hesitant about people who might otherwise, there are some people who just naturally don't want children no matter what, but yeah. there are people who would normally maybe want to have children, but for lots of reasons have decided against it. And yes. just because of the way it works, these are people who are going to be thoughtful people, thoughtful yes. and, you know, it's because they feel like it's a very, it's coming from the moral conscience, basically, right? Yeah. And so that's the problem right there. If these are the type of people who are not raising children, then... yeah. <laughs> There was, that's, I, I remember it even before this movie came out, uh, I had a conversation with uh, a woman that I was friends with way back in university 
she was a mutual friend of, of me and my then girlfriend. And, you know, my girlfriend and I, we both mentioned like, yeah, you know, we, neither of us really want to have children in the future. I don't know if I feel the same way now. I don't know. I haven't really thought of it, but our mutual friend goes, but you're smart. We need people like that. <laughs> That's what she said. So yeah, that was where that thought was first introduced to me. I, I think in terms of collapse scenarios, one of the things that, that strikes me as, as this one being one of the more horrific is that like another movie we'll talk about later on, it's the one that I can see happening, as you just mentioned. It's the one that I can most easily imagine or one of the ones I can most easily imagine. Okay, and that concludes part one of our special episode on 10 films about societal collapse. Join us next time when we talk about five more movies about collapse. Until then, this is not the end of the episode. It is the end of part one, however. Until next time, I'm your host, the pop mythologist. you enjoyed that episode please subscribe and if you're willing share one of these episodes on social media if your chosen podcast platform allows reviews like apple podcasts i invite you to leave a review as well thank you